0: Well, let me ask you this evening to turn with me again to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. <clears throat> we'll read from verse 15. Familiar words of the latter part of this chapter we've been looking at. But again, let's read them together. Verse 13, I should have said. "For Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, we'll end our reading and trust the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we lift up again the words of that most Him. And think even of the heart, the purpose behind it, to survey the cross, to meditate deeply upon it, or that we might put all other things in perspective. And we pray that this night, something of the fruit of our Savior's labor there might be understood and even more embraced by those of us gathered here or those for whom he paid that ransom. And so be near us as we come to the close of this Sabbath together. Help us in our meditations, not merely to know something of the theory of the doctrine of this fruit of the Spirit, but that we might seek by the help of your Spirit to show more of this fruit every day in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're coming this evening to the last in this nine-fold list regarding the fruit of the Spirit. And I would remind you again that this that we've looked at is not, as in so many other places in Scripture, it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a representative list we've been looking at these things with regard to the the evidences of grace. We emphasize, rightly so, the means of grace. But we can externalize those means. We can externalize Bible reading. We can externalize even prayer. We can put it into a formality as the Pharisees did and the Lord rebukes them for their desiring to be known for their prayers. We can Come and attend the public means of grace and be numbered among the Lord's people as we assemble all of these things well and good and necessary. But again, we can go through those motions and not be impacted by them. But if we're going to be impacted by these means of grace, if we're going to use them in the right way, if they're going to have an impact upon us, well, these are the things that they're going to work. The Spirit is going to use these means toward the ends. The ends are what we've been looking at in this ninefold fruit of the Spirit. And I tell you again, the point here being that these are things that will be present in the lives of every believer, at least to some degree. These are marks of newness of life. These are the aspects, these are the characteristics of the new man. The old man whose characteristics are listed in the works of the flesh, that is what's being put down. That's what's being crucified and put to death in the life of the believer. And these are being increased in the life of the believer. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well, what are the old things but the works of the flesh? What are the new things? but the fruit of the Spirit. And as we've looked at these, just to review where we've been, we paused a little bit at first to consider the way that it's presented to us. In contrast to the works of the flesh, these are the fruit of the Spirit. They're a natural growth. They're a process. They're the evidence of life. We've emphasized there sometimes the prospect of fruit is a gradual thing. It's not just something that somebody's particularly moved emotionally at a sermon and walks an aisle and then suddenly they're a different person in every way the moment they leave the building. Well, someone can pass from death into life in a moment, and the changes can be radical indeed. But by and by, those are the changes where we leave off Uh, The things we used to do, as it were. Those old habits, those sinful lifestyle issues. In so many ways, that's the easy part of becoming a Christian and walking the Christian life, is just physically stopping doing the certain things that were openly sinful. But working on the matters of the heart, the desires of the heart and mind that produce those outward actions, And to see how the flesh can manifest itself in different ways. And try and gratify itself in different ways. Even well-intentioned outward religious ways. And to build up these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's where this organic aspect of life and growth is seen the children of God. So in the nature of this spiritual reality, it's this aspect of fruit. It is something, as we said, that's universal. It impacts all believers. There's a unity to this fruit. It's not something we can pick and choose and say, well, I want to have love, but I don't want to have peace. No, it's a package deal, if you will. We've also... Considered as we looked at these, and I think this division, though, well, as Dr. Barrett might tell me in a hermeneutics class, it's somewhat artificial. But yet I think as we, we think through these things, that there is that threefold aspect. Those evidences of grace, this part of the fruit that is Godward, primarily. And that which is manward, or toward our neighbor, that's center three and then those which impact us more personally, individually, in the last three. So the dimensions of this spiritual reality are that of God and of others and of self. And then it's when we come to the individual things that are listed that we get into the illustration, the outworking of this spiritual life. And so we come tonight to the last of these, this finishing out this little triplet that has to do with our own personal inward life. And we come to the term temperance. Temperance is a word that in many ways in our usage, and I don't even know how much it's used uh, among us today, but it came at least a generation or so ago to be really identified with a particular movement in the different Christian societies. The temperance movement was a movement against the use of alcohol among the Lord's people. Well, the term temperance would apply to that and its application towards strong drink, to use the Scripture's phrase. But it's a fruit of the Spirit that isn't limited to one aspect of activity or lifestyle. It's that which should characterize the whole of our lives. Temperance, in some ways, I would suggest, could be looked at as a summary of these graces that have to do with our temporal lives temperance is a fruit of the spirit and that temperance as you boil it down comes down to what simply would flow out as self-control was used therefore with regard to drink and controlling oneself and not pursuing that but self-control in every aspect of life is a fruit The Spirit. Proverbs puts it this way He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You think of what a wall was to a city in the ancient world. I mean, today, in some ways, it's relatively insignificant. You fly over the wall, you send missiles over the wall, etc., etc. But in that day, it was a worthy fortification walls could keep an enemy from getting in Uh, the limit of your survival was really your access to food and water because the enemy wasn't coming in well here self-control what a defense what a help in every matter of life and actually when you look at the contrast to the fruit of the spirit the works of the flesh what are those many things that are listed there but evidences of occasions in which people do not exercise self-control when it comes to the pursuit of their lusts and their desires and so this final aspect of the fruit of the spirit again in this triplet that deals with us in the privacy of one our own hearts our own individual and personal lives, let us seek and ask the Lord's help in exercising temperance, self-control. And I want to consider it tonight in a simple way. And the first I would put to you is this. There's really a practical assumption that underlies this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. If we're called upon to exercise self-control, then there's an assumption underneath that there are things in us that need to be controlled. There are things in us that need to be put down instead of let out. It's a little contrary to the mindset of our age. But then in a godless age, we're not surprised. You look at the Scripture, and I don't want to multiply texts and uh, pursue this at length, I think we understand this, we we doctrinally appreciate it, we practically feel it, but we as even mature believers still have an old man that clings to us, we're not yet glorified, we're not yet brought to a state of sinless perfection, and those that claim a sinless perfection, and you can look at different places that it's manifested itself in church history, to me it's always, I don't know, humorous isn't the right word, but you just have to live in an alternate universe. Perfectionists, along with legalists, because legalists like to be able to say, I've got all the boxes checked. What do they have to do? They have to redefine sin. They have to make sin of such a nature that it's, it's only defined by outward things that I can gain some measure of control over and say then I've mastered sin. But I say this practical assumption, if you will, that's underneath our understanding of the need for temperance is that until the day of glory, until we're... Absent from the body and present with the Lord. And even then we're not fully to that point in our theology that we speak of as glorification when body and soul are healed and entirely perfected and brought into the presence of God. But even those that are absent from the body and present with the Lord have ceased from sin. While we're still here, this flesh, this old man attaches to us. Sin is a present reality. And even in those areas where we gain victory and we are held back from sin, the common confession is that our old man would press us in that direction. We could turn and read from the 7th chapter of Romans, prolonged testimonial of none other than the Apostle Paul. And he says, I would desire to do good, but there's something else present within me warring against the law of my mind. There's an old man there. And he says, I hate it. And So we have to take our place with Paul, understanding the spirituality of the law. I mean, seriously, you think of those that promote what they call sinless perfection. Is heaven going to be populated with untold millions of people that are in the same condition that they are? It's really a pitiful misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a pitiful misunderstanding of Christian experience. And it is the making and the outliving of a lie. It's the redefinition of sin. As I like to say about legalism, it reduces the law to a capable standard. Legalists don't expand the law. They reduce it. So there's, I say, a very practical assumption underneath this call for temperance in the life of the believer. And that is that we have an old man. We're not already perfect. There is something in us that needs to be kept at bay. Kept in check. And so that leads then to a constant personal assessment. The Apostle said in Philippians 3, again, the Apostle Paul, not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. Paul is admitting that there is no such experience as sinless perfection. And so he acknowledges that. He assesses himself daily in light of God's Word and of God's law. And that calls upon him to put down the old man. It calls upon him to crucify the flesh. It calls upon him to seek the help of the Spirit as we read in this portion here while the flesh lusts against the Spirit. I remember when I was in college and wrestling with the doctrines of grace, always under a lot of fervent preaching, whether it's at camp meetings or youth groups and just regular preaching. Uh, Hard preaching against sin, which is well and good. But I was most mindful of the flesh lusting against the Spirit of the old man and of the lust of the flesh and all those things that the world and the flesh and the devil were seeking to promote and ensnare us in in our lives. To have that truth put before me doctrinally and therefore helped practically, that not only does the flesh lust against the spirit, but the spirit lusts against the flesh. That there is a new man. And that the new man, in the case of the believer, is the real man. We've been renewed in the inner man, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Those aspects of regeneration that hark back to the original condition of man before the fall. God, by His Spirit, is working this grace in us again, imperfectly. And incrementally in this life until we're brought to the day of glory. But we can, with the Apostle, recognize we've not already attained. And so we're conscious of our need. We're conscious of our weakness. We're conscious of our tendencies to sin. We sang in... Commented on the familiar words of Watts tonight in the hymn When I Survey. Another phrase that Watts offers, and I'm struggling to get the name of the hymn now, but the phrase I'm looking for leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. I think we sang that maybe when we were looking at the churches of Asia and Revelation. But it's this mindfulness. Of our tendencies to sin, that this grace of temperance, of self control, moves us to understand. That same passage where Paul in Philippians says he's not already attained, he says in the 14th verse, I press. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's not passive. That's indeed quite active. And it's interesting because as you look through here, if you look in verse 15 in our passage, we read um, verse 16, rather, walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. <coughs> the normal word in verse 16 for walk is used. But in verse 25 at the close of the chapter, we read here, we've crucified We that are Christ, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. There's a different word here. There's a synonym. This is the word that's used of of walking in line. Uh, This is the soldiering type of word. It's a purposeful word. And so we have the influence of the Spirit to lead. And then we have the response and the activity of the Christian to walk, to pursue. And so here, as the apostle there speaks of pressing, as Paul says in another place, Corinthians 9, keep under my body. You think of Paul then understanding that necessity of putting down the flesh of exercising self-control, temperance with regard to the old man. And he says that sobering phrase, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so there's an activity that is involved in our growth. In our pursuit, yes, this working of the Spirit within us, this spiritual life that brings forth the fruit of the Spirit within us. And yet, as we say so often, when we are regenerated, yes, by the sovereign, monergistic activity of the Spirit of God, we are not dead anymore. He has breathed life into us. He has made us new creatures. And part of that new life is the putting to death old man part of that new life is understanding there is a sinful tendency within us that needs to be controlled and so we come and we look at these aspects of the fruit of the spirit temperance in many ways I mean if you look at this triplet at the end faith meekness temperance It is by faith that we pursue these outward personal aspects of growth and grace. When the world tells us it's lies, that it's only in letting the old man have his way that there's contentment and satisfaction. In some ways we have just but to open our eyes and look. Has there been a more discontented unsatisfied generation than the one we live in today where there is no law where morality is turned on its head the things that God's law puts before us and that we would stand for are mocked and yet the old man would be drawn out with such false thinking And so the Spirit, thank God, lusts against the flesh. And the Spirit calls upon us to exercise temperance, self control. One of the wonders and beauties of the Gospel is that as we grow in grace, self control, well, we think of it often, and perhaps even in the main way we've presented it tonight as almost a negative aspect of holding down the old man. But the positive aspect, as in all things spiritual, for us to again by faith and even by experience to understand the blessedness and the happiness of walking in the law of God and of not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, of having the fruit of that godliness Be manifest in the life and the joys and the contentment that it does bring. And so, the fruit of the Spirit here, again, toward our God, toward our neighbor, toward ourselves, the joy and fullness that it brings, the contentment in contrast to the discontent. And again, if you survey that catalog of the works of the flesh, There's just strife. There's friction. There's not getting along. Hatred, variance, emulations. All of these things. These are manifest by those who have no temperance. No means of putting down the old man. Of crucifying the flesh with its affections. And putting on the new man, which is renewed in godliness and righteousness and holiness. I want to come back to this particular portion for a summary message. In closing, we've looked at these nine parts of the fruit of the Spirit. But let us take, even this Sabbath evening, the simplicity of this ninth admonition. Self-control. In a world where the flesh is celebrated and might just well say, out of control, the Spirit would graciously work imprints in us and that we would happily pursue the things of the new man and putting down the things of the old. Let's bow our heads together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're grateful tonight that there are portions in Your Word, in the experience of Your people. We've seen several from the life of the Apostle. It causes relief, as it were, to see that one such as Paul, while he was a man, as it said of Elijah, of like passion, such as we are. That he knew and could testify of the battles with the sinful nature. He could also testify of the wonders of grace and of victory. Well, help us tonight to consider this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And not take the worldly mindset that self-control is a sign of weakness, a sign of Not allowing yourself to live, as it were. Sin, when it is finished, you say, brings forth death. Grace. These evidences of grace are the evidences of life for those who will have life everlasting. Help us in these days of our pilgrim journey here, we would confess as an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that is a temporal one. The old man one day will be no more. And self-control, as it were, will be an automatic thing because the desires of our mind will be entirely renewed, entirely according to your will and your life. We'll look for that day. We'll cry again, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Help us in occupying until you come to take on more of this evidence of the Spirit within us of self control. We pray these things in Jesus' worthy name.